Cape Up is sponsored by T. Rowe Price. Are you looking to learn a thing or two about getting your finances in order, saving, and investing? Check out The Confident Wallet, a personal finance podcast series by T. Rowe Price and the Washington Post Brand Studio. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Jonathan Capehart, and welcome to Cape Up. At the start of 2019, let's revisit our best episode of 2018, our visit to D'Angelo McDade and his Chicago neighborhood a year to the day he and his family were shot at on their front porch. In June, I went to the Aspen Ideas Festival. It's a week-long incubator put on by the Aspen Institute every year. And people from all over the world, by and large liberals and very wealthy, attend. There are seminars and talks and symposia centered around ideas about how to change the world. And the organizers hope people will leave Aspen feeling energized and actually act on changing the world. This year at the closing session, there was a panel featuring three young people from Chicago Ariana Williams, Trayvon Bosley, and D'Angelo McDade, where they talked about gun violence. And through the course of the conversation, you find out they and their families have all been victims of gun violence. And we're not talking just one time. We're talking many, many, many times over. The first death that I ever experienced was my father at the age of eight. Um, uh, I lost my brother, Terrell Bosley, uh, April 4th, 2006, and he was a well-known gospel Today I have to fight for those Chicago. who are born and unborn and those who have lost their lives due to gun violence. So these three kids who came to Aspen to talk about gun violence, they, they did this in the midst of a larger debate about gun control in our country that was sparked by the victims of, of the Parkland shooting. The, the media paid attention. Americans paid attention by giving them resources and time and money. So uh, at the end of the panel, these three kids from Chicago, well, they let this group know that they needed just as much attention, if not more. The support that you gave Parkland monetarily, um, spiritually, but also mentally, we need the same. Because the reality of one is our multiply that one times 700. And one of these kids, I mean, took it a step further a few minutes later by just asking a simple question. But how many people in this room would actually come to Chicago and spend a day in our neighborhoods? Because we can make that happen if we really want to. And (laughs) my hand reflexively shot up in the air. But so there were so many other people's hands shot up in the air. I mean, it was a very inspiring moment where this young woman, this young African-American woman who is unafraid to challenge this overwhelmingly white crowd to, you know, do this. And then I want you to come visit my neighborhood and to see people actually respond. That's what was inspiring. You said it's red brick, right? I think it is, yeah. I wanted to get in touch with one of the kids from the panel, so we're put in touch with D'Angelo McDade, who made himself available. So we got on his schedule, booked our tickets, and off we went to Chicago. Yep, there it is, right here. 
We got to D'Angelo's house. It's in a West Chicago neighborhood. Hey, D'Angelo, nice to see you again. Jonathan, my producer, Carol. D'Angelo McDade, he's 18 years old, just graduated from North Lawndale College Prep. How shall we... Um, let's get a microphone on Oh, yeah, that's right, we need to put a microphone As promised, D'Angelo took us on a walk around his neighborhood. This way you can see everything. On D'Angelo's street, it's not unlike any other sort of tidy urban neighborhood anywhere on the Northeast. Everyone knows everyone on our block, so it's kind of like everyone knows everyone's business, mm-hmm. especially that house there. Hey, Mr. Rose, I'm good in your cell. Tell me about it's Mr. Rose, especially Mr. Rose, especially that house. No, no it's his wife is Mrs. Rose. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mrs. Rose is very charismatic. Whether you need her or not, she's always there. And then we get to the corner. Two years ago, there was this giant building here, kind of a replica of this building. Uh-huh. And, um, like a big apartment built, like an apartment building with stores on the ground floor? Yes, sir. And um, they tore it down. One thing that you'll notice about our community is there are a lot of lots, a lot of banded buildings. Mm-hmm. A couple years ago, uh, the mayor ruled out that we had to start tearing down the abandoned buildings because girls were becoming kidnapped and raped and people were getting murdered in them. Um, let's take it right here, you guys. And this is, this, I mean, this is a major avenue. This is Chicago Avenue we're on. And that was when D'Angelo started explaining what was happening and who was where and what it all meant. Even here, this is what they call drug land. You can see that there are people standing on the corner. Those individuals do sell drugs. But on the north two side, the north corners, these are the individuals that utilize the drugs. Ah, so we're on the north side. So we mm-hmm. just we just passed the market. You passed the on market. On the south side of us was the suppl- were the suppliers. suppliers. So suppliers, consumers. Mm-hmm. The corner that we just passed on Chicago Avenue Ridgeway, the youngest person out there who sells drugs is 11 years old. The young man loved to play basketball. He was, he, academically, he was sound in school. Um, but I guess that he lacked a sense of community, mm-hmm. a sense of family. And so that is what... D'Angelo told me that kids turn to gangs and, and to drugs because they're losing their schools and their community centers and nobody cares, it seems, that they turn to gangs. Before a majority of these young individuals started to either sell drugs or stop going to the YMCA, there was a school called Galapagos Charter School. And so one thing that I can say about um, the academic institution... They pride themselves by creating partnerships that allow students to stay involved um, in extracurriculum activities, sending them to Northwestern University. Mm -hmm. Um, But sadly, the school is now closed. And even though there's no, there are no borders and no, no boundaries, there's no guard station, there's no flags or anything like that, but he knows exactly where the boundaries are. Let's make it right here. Because um, if we continue walking straight towards the vision on this block, right. you all will run into a, a massive group of drug dealers and gang members. Not saying that they're bad, but things can get a little heated on that corner, mm-hmm. um, especially when you're just walking through. Uh-huh. So w- walking with 
D'Angelo through his neighborhood might not seem like it would be an issue for me. I'm black. He's black. We're both black walking in a black neighborhood. But D'Angelo's neighborhood is, and the life he lives there, is not my lived experience. I'll make fun of myself right now. I was in a blazer and my jeans and a little pocket square, and I've got my my little bag with my notebook and everything in it. So I feel like I'm standing out like a sore thumb. Also, Carol stood out because, you know, she's a white woman in, you know, West Chicago. And I could not help but feel like I stood out because I African-American, but clearly not from around here. And here I am in their neighborhood feeling as out of place once we get to walking and talking as as Carol did. We make our way back to D'Angelo's house to the front porch where a year ago to that day uh, gun violence directly impacted his life. It was actually evening. It was evening time, so around 6 o'clock in the evening. Normally, when our, fa- our family does not stop talking for nothing in the world um, because our lives are very loud. And so uh, a friend of the family, my grandfather's godson, stood at the bottom of the stairs, and he says, a gentleman is walking up with his gun drawn, and he has on a white hoodie. And so immediately the porch got silent, and my mom screamed out, um, everybody in the house. And my mother was the first one to run in the household, then became my twin sister. My grandfather had my little cousin in his arms while having his phone laid on his chest. And my grandfather threw the baby like he was a football to my sister. My sister ran into the house, and well, one of the bullets ricocheted off the bricks, and then another bullet ricocheted off his phone. Life-proof cases are life-proof. I ended up pushing my grandfather into the household, so I'm the last one in. My grandfather was shot in the front of his thigh. And after being the last one in, I really didn't know that I was shot until looking at my granddad and trying to make sure everybody else was okay, and I felt like something was burning. Mm. I rubbed against my, my back of my leg, and I was like, I'm bleeding. And I screamed out, I'm shot, Ma, I'm shot. And my mama screams out, stop playing with me, Lo. And I say, Ma, I'm for real. I get in the house and my mom calls 911 and says she needs an ambulance. And she screams, these MFers and shot my baby. When we asked D'Angelo about who the gunman was and why the gunman shot his family that day, he told us he was someone they recognized from around the neighborhood. D'Angelo said that his family was not the intended target of the shooting, but that the person the gunman was after was a family friend. And the gunman decided, hey, if he couldn't get him, he would get anyone he could. And that happened to be D'Angelo and his family. And D'Angelo said it took the police and an ambulance 25 minutes to get to them. Once I got into the ambulance, my, they refused to let my mom in there with me for a while until I got to kind of scream and saying that I wasn't going to leave without my mom because I'm 17, I need a parent. They took my ID and never brought my ID back. My mom gets into the ambulance, she's crying. Every bump that the ambulance 
hit, it hurt. Um, we get there, I'm handcuffed to the hospital bed. The, when, when the lead detective walked into the room and she said, oh, they said that you're, you're a gang member, huh? And the question rings in my mind, implicit racial bias. That is the first thing that we get for African-American or students of color, period, or people of color. And no one asked me anything. They all made assumptions. No one talked to my mom. No one talked to my sister. Nobody talked to my grandmother. They thought, they decided is the real word, that he was a gang member. And all he was was a 17-year-old kid sitting on his front porch with his family on an August night, a victim of gun violence. Cape Up is sponsored by T. Rowe Price. Are you looking to learn a thing or two about getting your finances in order, saving, and investing? Check out The Confident Wallet, a personal finance podcast series by T. Rowe Price and the Washington Post brand studio. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. So you're hand, you, you are handcuffed to, to the, the, the stretcher. What did you think, what was going through your mind then? Why, why should I be a peace warrior and keep fighting for Kenya nonviolence if this is going to be my reality? Peace Warriors is an organization D'Angelo founded after meeting former Education Secretary Arne Duncan in 2017. Uh, it was at a gun violence town hall, and D'Angelo had an idea. The idea was to hire, mentor, and teach young people about nonviolence, or as D'Angelo calls it, Kingian nonviolence. So Kingian nonviolence is a philosophy developed by Dr. Martin Luther King during the civil rights era. And so when Dr. King led, he led in a nonviolent manner, and he developed the six steps and six Kenyan nonviolence principles in which we utilize and we interpret um, to the modern day. The first is nonviolence is a way of life for a courageous people. It takes a lot for an individual to not retaliate and or not to be violent. Number two, nonviolence seeks to win friendship and understanding. In order for us to prosper as a community, we must work together. Number three, nonviolence seeks to defeat injustice, not people. Attack the forces of evil, not the persons doing evil. That means if someone is coming in with a bad day and they have not eaten, what can I, what can I do? Hey, let me give you a snicker or let me give you something to eat. Um, I'm not going to attack you because there is something wrong. Number four, nonviolence holds that suffering can educate and transform. Sometimes we must step back even if it hurts and not retaliate because the end goal is much bigger than us. Number five, nonviolence chooses love instead of hate. Sometimes as an individual, and this is a human nature and human characteristics, we internalize our anger. And because we internalize our anger, it sometimes is dealt with in a physical manner. And so if we can avoid that internal anger, then we can process and we can live in a peaceful manner. Number six, nonviolence believes that the universe is on the side of justice. I love to analyze this one because uh, before Dr. King died, Dr. King stated, I may not be here when we get there, but we as a people will make it to the promised land. And so his basic words are interpreted to be what is done in the dark comes to the light. What goes around comes around. God is on the side of justice. I mean, I, I think D'Angelo's involvement in Peace Warriors and his sort of adherence to nonviolence is as much a response to 
his day-to-day living as it is a path forward. What it says to me is that he recognizes that his his life is more than that street in Chicago, that he's got he's got bigger plans and bigger ideas, and that if he could just hang on to this path, stay on this path, to show that I've lived through this, I'm living through this, and yet here's what's getting me through day to day. With a recognition that it's not the be-all and end-all, it is not the absolute solution, but it is the thing that is keeping him hopeful. The day when I was shot and I looked into my mom's eyes, I looked and I saw what my mom was telling me every single day. Go to school. Don't be like your dad. Become an educator. Give back to your community. But most importantly, survive. We have gotten to this point in our lives where we are only trying to survive. I don't want to survive. I don't want anyone just to survive. I want them to live with proactive purpose. is in disbelief, shocked by devastating violence, this time at that Florida high school on Valentine's Day. Heavily armed SWAT teams, armored vehicles surrounding Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida. They were saddened to say that uh, 17 people lost their lives. To every politician who is taking donations from the NRA, shame on you. Let me ask you about Parkland. When the news of Parkland hit... What went through your mind? When, when former Secretary of Education Arnie Duncan gave me the call and said, hey, uh, you, have you heard about the Parkland students? I was like, um, no, you have to tell me about it. Because I really wasn't familiar. I stopped watching the news because it became so depressing. And he says, well, how about you and some peace words go down? He didn't even get to finish his statement. I said, let's go. Let's work with the Parkland students. Their one day of trauma is our reality. And so we cannot allow the Parkland students to feel hopeless like we have for many years. So D'Angelo and and others from Chicago go down to Parkland and they go to Emma Gonzalez's house. And this was after Emma gave the speech that turned her really into a household name. Politicians who sit in their gilded house and Senate seats funded by the NRA telling us could have ever been done to prevent this. We call BS. The the New Yorker magazine has a story about all of you, which is when you all went down to Parkland and you're all at Emma Gonzalez's house and you're sitting around the pool. Yes, Lord. What was that like? She welcomed us with open arms. We got there. It was more students. We separated from the adults, the older adults and we wanted to have conversation just as young people. And we decided to go outside and we go into a heavy conversation about gun violence. One of them asked the Parkland kids, how many times have you been involved in gun violence? And they, the way the story was told, they all sort of looked at each other and was like, well, yeah, just this one time. And so the question came back 
from the Parkland kids to the Chicago kids, well, how many times have you been involved? And each one went down the line. And I can't remember who said what, but it was one person said 35 times. Another person said 40 times. Another person said 20 times. The point they were making was this isn't just a one-day occurrence for us. This is a lived experience for us. And then a a young lady by the name of Sarah screamed out, we acknowledge our white privilege. When she screamed that out, the entire, everyone that was outside by the pool got silent. Because we've had this conversation about white privilege because in the city of Chicago, one shooting barely makes the news. And for her to scream out, and we're just not having this conversation, you scream out, hey, I acknowledge my white privilege. We, we were sitting there, and we all just looked around, and I screamed out, that means you see me. If you are willing to acknowledge something that you were born into and something that you cannot help and you're willing to work with us to help our community, that, that means all the world. Were you surprised by that? By not just her screaming that, but by the fact that the Parkland kids from basically minute one were like, we, this happened to us, but we are not the only ones this has happened to. We are reaching out to um, kids in Chicago and other cities who have been dealing with this a whole lot longer than we it, have. Originally, they didn't reach out to us. We reached out to them. Well, true, correct. Our partnership just grew stronger. I believe our partnership grew stronger because they felt what our everyday reality was. And I use everyday reality because we've normalized hopelessness. We've normalized gun violence. It's more common to hear a gunshot rather than your own doorbell to ring. When we were having the conversations about working together and all of this, Emma, Emma was more of the person that says, yeah, I'm ready, let's do it, let's do it. And we're just like, we see that there is something that we could possibly do, something we can possibly work together on. We've already been working in the city of Chicago, but we just wanted their blessings to work with them on the national level. Because one thing that we noticed is the March for Alive students still had the momentum. They still were receiving um, financial support, moral support, letters. But even their, even their elected officials, some of them were supporting them. In Chicago, we didn't receive any of that. At March for Our Lives, I rewatched your speech. And there was a line in there I, that I wrote down because it spoke to the dynamic in terms of attention between the attention given to the Parkland kids and the attention given to you here in Chicago. And you said, For we are survivors. For I am a survivor. For we are survivors not only of gun violence, but of silence. Why do you think there's been silence? One, I believe because it's an everyday thing. Um, Two, I believe that race plays a factor in this. And it's sad to say, but racism does play a factor. The Parkland students are 
majority a Caucasian and or white, whatever anyone wants to call it, group that has worked to reform gun regulation. And so they're there, they get the attention, and because society has this thought that gun violence does not always involve um, our white counterparts, that this is unusual, we need to stop this now. What about the people in the back that have been fighting for many years? I've been fighting before March for our lives. I've been fighting since practically being a baby. My mother's been fighting since she's practically been a baby. 47 years of fighting, just going down the drain. There's frustration in, in that answer. And as you said, it's not so directed at the Parkland students, but it's directed at, it's directed at society for what, treating Parkland slash Chicago as the cause of the moment and then moving on to something else? Practically, yes. The thing that's always been fascinating, the lack of resentment, the lack of bitterness at the sort of instant notoriety of the Parkland kids who lived through one horrific mass shooting compared to your everyday existence. And as you said before, even your parents' everyday existence. Where does the lack of, of bitterness and resentment come from? I mean, you would have every right to be resentful. How did I not extend bitterness? I believe my how happened on August 1st of 2017. My how was my grandfather laying in his hospital bed. My why was my mother not being able to sit on our front porch for several months. My why was seeing my fellow peers stand on the corner because some of them didn't even have their parents who could afford rent. Some of them having to grow up at younger ages. My how became if I had resentment, I would hate myself. My how became seeing my friend's mother scream about her child dying. My how became seeing Emma Gonzalez give her very first speech about the Parkland students. My how became me laying in my bed and having my sister to change my raps and wanting her not to go through the same thing. Those became my how because if I became bitter, I would forget why I'm actually doing what I'm doing. And I don't want to forget that. Because resenting them will be resisting my past. And resisting my past is something that I'll never want to do. It's been about five months since I first met D'Angelo and three months since we visited him in Chicago. And, you know, a few weeks after we left D'Angelo, more than 60 people were shot in one weekend, including the very neighborhood we walked in. At the time we're publishing this episode, more than 2,600 people have been shot in Chicago in 2018, which amazingly is about 600 fewer than last year. And since our visit with D'Angelo, our country has seen even more mass shootings, including the Pittsburgh synagogue shooting in October 
and the Thousand Oaks, California mass shooting in November, not to mention the Mercy Hospital mass shooting in Chicago, also in November, plus countless gun-related incidents that don't even make national headlines. And the frustration and powerlessness have only mounted, and they're best personified by that mother in California who said her child survived the Las Vegas mass shooting but didn't come home that night. And I don't want prayers. I don't want thoughts. I want gun control, and I hope to God nobody else sends me any more prayers. I want gun control. No more guns. Thank you. What that grieving mother is saying is something that people keep saying, and it's true. Something needs to be done about this problem. Which brings us back to the Aspen Ideas Festival, where I first met D'Angelo and his fellow panelists and watched them challenge the audience to do something to help them solve problems like gun violence. You were part of the closing panel and basically brought that tent down. Um, People um, were raving about how the conference ended, which ended not on a, you know, oh, look at us, we're solving the world's problems and everything is great and we all agree with each other. The three of you sat up there and read the crowd, just point blank (laughs) said to the crowd, how many of you would be willing to spend a day in our neighborhood, come to Chicago, spend the day? Were you surprised by how many hands went up? Yes. Why? One, because individuals will say that they are willing to come, but in all actuality, they won't come. They're just saying it to please themselves. Two, sometimes we feel as if individuals don't care, and some individuals don't want to actually make a difference. Three, for those individuals that rose their hands, I'm still waiting on them to come. Still waiting. I mean, I can't hide anything on my face. Carol told me later that I had this look of disappointment. And I truly was. I guess I am still, at 51 years old, this little kid who actually believes when people say they're going to do something, that they're actually going to do it. And to realize that I was the only person to actually show up um, was, it was disappointing, it was hurtful, it, it was, it really, I don't know, I just felt so let down by the people in that tent. When I saw all of those hands go up and, I, and, and when she asked a question and those hands went up, I'm sitting there, so you want to see my reality. You want to live in my world for a little while. That's why I laughed and I chuckled. And then one woman walked up to me. She said, I really don't want to come. I just want to see how many people raise their hands along with me. Why? And why? And, and, and she walked up right before I walked over to speak with you. She was the last one to give me a hug. I will not want to see your reality because that will make me feel bad about who I am and where I live. That, that lets me know that you know that there's wrongdoing in the world. 
that lets me know that you see what's going on, you see what's happening. Don't raise your hand if you're not going to come. Don't raise your hand if you're not going to help me save the next person's life. Don't raise your hand if you don't want to help save mine. This winter, join the Washington Post in its fight against hunger, homelessness, and poverty with a contribution to Post Helping Hand. To learn more and donate, visit posthelpinghand.com.